This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, and verse 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Like Damien mentioned, I had to travel up to Philadelphia on Friday, and it was 80 degrees here when I left. And I got there, and it was upper 20s late Friday night as I was leaving a building and and heading off to go rest. And Saturday morning, as I got up and went to the airport, uh, again, it was was about 30-ish, and it was snowing. That's okay. I was coming back here, and then I got here, and here we are, and it's frigid. Um... And I I suspect that feeling may be similar to what the text this morning strikes you as. We've been looking for four months at the Ten Commandments. Uh, You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall have no other gods before me. And there are these massively large and rather direct statements about how you're to live and how you're not to live. And this morning, in the tenth and final commandment, It's as though any sense of equilibrium, any sense of, okay, I know what I should do and I kind of have an idea of what I'm to avoid and and to fend off, Uh, it's as though we go down and there's yet another level of challenge and of being confronted by God's call. Because here we speak not simply about external action, but very explicitly we are addressed about the internal life of our very souls, hearts, and affections. As we hear about coveting, as we hear about craving, as we hear about desiring, and as we think about what it means to follow God there as well. Not just how we treat one another with our words, with our bodies, with our resources, but how we actually enthrone the Lord as king in our hearts as well. And so we want to consider that this morning, and it's very fitting to do so as we've got so many men and women who've joined the church as members. It's important as you begin corporate life, and they've, many of them have been a part of, of our community for some time, but as there's a, a new beginning and a formalization of our commitment to one another to remember what we're about, I'm reminded of a a Christian philosopher who has taught in years past at Princeton University and would lead a a freshman seminar reading the great books. And there are all these eager, intelligent, 18-year-old men and women who would come into his seminar room and he would begin by describing how from Socrates to Montaigne, the great philosophers would tell you that you study to learn to die. They don't mention that in freshman orientation. And they don't put that on bulletins uh, or advertisements, mailings going out trying to allure high school seniors to come to a college. But there he sat and he said, you're here to learn how to die that you might learn how to live. 
And of course, that's not just something that the, the philosophers of old spoke of, but those are words that Jesus commended, that as Bonhoeffer put it, reading the Gospels, when Jesus Christ bids a man come, he bids him come and die. And so we see that as women and men are brought to Christ and united to Christ, there is a death and then there is a resurrection. There is a, a mortification, a putting to death of those assumptions and desires, those expectations and ideals that we bring to the table. And then there's the giving of new life, of new hopes, of grander visions in the kind of way that over years you can start to, like the Shacklefords, speak of not being terribly troubled by giving up so many things that perhaps years ago would have been so difficult to leave behind because new joy and new delight has been stirred and awakened within their hearts. And that's what's being addressed here in the 10th commandment. As we are told, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. We first wanna consider what's being ruled out here, and how is this addressing a deeper matter of the heart than the commandments that have just come before it, those that we've considered already. And so we want to begin by thinking about coveting and desire, first of all. And there's really five things that we can very straightforwardly see in this short passage. We can see, first of all, that the issue is plainly the issue of desire. The, the word here for coveting is elsewhere translated as, as desiring something. In fact, in Deuteronomy 5, verse 21, when the Ten Commandments are repeated almost verbatim as Israel's about to enter the promised land, there two words are used to translate these verbs, and, and they're the words craving or coveting and then the word for desire. This is addressing a craving, a longing, something uh, that is stewing within you, a desire that is seemingly insatiable and prompting your attention. It is consuming. It is directing your focus. It is distracting you from other things. And it is pinning your hopes, your imagination, your mindset upon some particular thing. And so there's some sort of consuming craving that's being prohibited here. Secondly, we can see that this can have many objects. Notice the different things that are named here, whether it's somebody's spouse that you might crave, or it's uh, someone's possessions that you might crave, someone's resources, uh, the, the, the kind of animals, or in this day and age the, of the old times, uh, servants or slaves who could be put to work on their farm. Uh, anything finally is mentioned, anything that is your neighbor's. And so it's worth noting that there are many objects, and they're specific, but third, that anything can become an insatiable craving. Anything can become a disordered desire. Anything can become a covetous longing. Our hearts are idol-making factories, John Calvin used to say. We, we can take anything or everything and fix our passion upon it in an inappropriate and an excessive manner. And so Moses concludes here in 
reporting what God says, that it's not just the, the wife or the servant or the donkey or, or particular possessions or relations, but anything that's your neighbor's, you're not to covet it. And so it's all-inclusive. And then fourth, we can see that this connects very directly to some previous commandments. So for instance, we, we considered a number of weeks ago that you're not to commit adultery. You're not to go sleep with someone else's spouse. Well, here it's getting at something underneath that. You're not to crave that kind of relationship to someone else's spouse. Earlier, we're told you're not to thieve or steal. Well, here it's getting underneath that. You're not even to enviously desire that which someone else has. You're to contentedly sit, celebrating what God has blessed them with, not craving to dispossess them of it, to take it from them. And so we can see that the particular commandments that have already been described are now being taken down deep into the very heart, into our affections and passions. And fifth, we see that's something that, as we'll turn to in the Sermon on the Mount, Damien sort of gave it away, the next series that we'll be considering is the Sermon on the Mount, and there you'll see Jesus taking up a number of these commands and illustrating that they don't just relate to external action. He'll say, you've heard it said, you shall not murder someone, but I say to you, and then he'll address how anger and hatred for someone, desiring to do them wrong, desiring to harm them, not to benefit them, that is at the root of murder. He's not saying it's equivalent in every possible respect. He's not saying you may as well kill them if you've meant them wrong, but he's saying that's the very root, that's the same heart issue And that too is precluded. That too displeases God. That too harms your neighbor. And that too eats away at your own soul. And so what we see here in the 10 commandments, in the final commandment, is what's gonna prompt Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 47, to offer these various reflections on the commands of God. Time after time, taking what seems to be sort of a tangible, obvious action and saying, actually, there's a heart matter underneath it, and you need to be just as concerned about the heart, about what's going on inside and underneath your behavior, as that you avoid murdering or stealing or divorcing inappropriately or hating someone who has harmed you. You're to deal with your heart before you deal with them. You're to deal with your heart so that you actually overflow in dealing with them in a loving and caring and gracious and generous way. And so we see here, I think, what we see throughout the whole Bible, that desire is a serious matter. Desire is not an add-on. Desire is a serious matter at the core of our human experience. And the Bible does not play games with this. God is not simply interested in external conformity. God is interested in the blessing and the transformation of the whole person. And God addresses our passion, our appetites, our affections, and our desires head on. We see, of course, at the beginning of the Bible that desire is right at the heart of how things go awry. In Genesis 3, as we read of the fall, the first sin where paradise is ruined, we see that underneath the the fateful choice to eat the forbidden fruit is the word 
that the woman saw the fruit of the tree, saw that it was good and desired it or craved it. It's the same word that appears here in Exodus 20 and there in Deuteronomy 5 where this commandment is repeated. And we see in Genesis 4, the next great sin where Cain and Abel's relationship is fractured. We see uh, that we are told there that sin will desire to undo you. That the way in which the fabric of our lives together is rent apart, illustrated there by one brother, not being his brother's keeper, but being his, being his brother's killer. That that illustrates this principle that sin is disordered desire. It's yearning for that which we ought not have, or yearning for that which we ought to have, but in an inappropriate and excessive way that, that leads to harm and not to health. And so we see at the very beginning of the Bible in these two stories that Desire is at the core of our experience, but sadly desire is, as I trust you know as well as I, it's a part of the rhythm of our disorder and of our pain and of our struggle. We struggle to desire the right things and we, we struggle to desire in the right manner, the right amount. And for those of us who live in a land like this and in a place like this and in a congregation like this where by and large we are those who have remarkable access to resources and opportunities for which we ought to be grateful, we need to realize the Bible also tells us we're in a uniquely difficult and tempting position. You can see this by listening to those who are watching our world. I, I read just this past week a book by Madeline Levine, a psychologist out in Marin County, California, the, the county just north of San Francisco. It's the wealthiest county in California, which means it's, it's well, pretty wealthy. And in her book, in her book on the price of privilege, she talks about the myriad ways in which teenagers of excessively wealthy Californian families experience some unique challenges, precisely because of the resources, precisely because of the expectations, precisely because of the environment in which they were in. And it was burned into her imagination when one day she was there in the office and a new client came in, and it was a, a, an incredibly talented and bright teenage girl from seemingly a wonderful family, two parents, they'd stayed together, uh, very successful, she's going to one of the best schools, uh, she has excellent grades and scores. She's involved. And then as the conversation went on, she saw the shirt sleeve come up. And she realized that she was not only a cutter, but that she had branded herself by cutting the word empty onto her forearm. The irony that someone who lives in one of the wealthiest counties in all the globe would believe that the thing that ought to mark her very being is emptiness. Because if we live in situations like ours, we realize that desire can be so insatiable. It's excessive. Billboards and commercials are premised on this, that you will always want more, that you will never be satisfied. There is always another stinking iPhone to be invented. And whatever you have, the camera will not be good enough. The connection will not be strong enough. And it will slow there's always something else. There's always someone else to keep up with. People spend billions of dollars every year to gin up your heart so that you are never satisfied. 
You know, we often think about media and our environment and the way we're harmed by it. And we think, for instance, when you turn on the television or you look at the, the internet, you know, it's, it's observing sex or violence or foul language that is the immoral issue and we need to, to, to be wary of that. And that's true and I, I don't mean to shoot that idea down. But it's amazing how often we treat the true cancers as being benign. And we're falsely fooled into believing that very tame commercials aren't soul-killing. Because something can avoid parading flesh, it can avoid excessive arrogance, and still silently creep into your soul and convince you that you aren't enough and you don't have enough and you need more and those people have it. And so we consume and we absorb and we're shaped by it. We live in a place that patterns our desires and forms our wants in that kind of excessive, ongoing parade that will never end. It will never end because we're made for more. We're made for something that does satisfy. We're made for something that, that does actually quench our thirst. We're made for something that really does provide not just bread for the day, but bread from heaven. Now, Christianity has for centuries gotten a bad rap and both those inside and outside the church oftentimes have a, a bad notion or a misperception about the gospel and the way of Jesus. And it's crucial, of course, and it's good for new members to be reminded that part of being part of this community is we do come to die together, that we might be reborn together, and that God is committed not just to making you better, but to making you new, to raising you to new life, but it's crucial that we remember that death is always paired with life and that no is always premised on a deeper and more profound yes. Now we can, we can think about the ways in which this command alerts us to our failure to rightly say no. You can do a quick inventory. What are those places in your life where you spend money, time, and concern where your heart is tugged where it may not be downright evil but it's distracting and rather unimportant where where are you sailing toward the insignificant not the outright sinful but the pedestrian where is your concern where is your imagination where is your identity being rooted in things that are fleeting that are failing that will not fulfill ultimately because they will not last you might not just look backward but look forward where are those things that you are longing that you are identifying yearnings if if only i could go on that vacation or have that experience if only we could move into that neighborhood if only if only I could get the, the raise and the position that that coworker that she or he has. If only we could get our kids to behave perhaps like that family seems to. If, if only I could achieve a certain level of holiness and, and spiritual maturity like so-and-so, then I'd matter. Then it would be okay. Like the words of the commandment that... The, the objects of our desire can be many. In fact, right after the, the giving of the commandments again in Deuteronomy 5, Moses confronts Israel and he, he tells them that there's only one Lord, your Lord, therefore you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
in Deuteronomy 6. And then from Deuteronomy 7 through 11, as we read earlier, he targets specific things that can lead us awry and that can shape our desire in false and fleeting ways. And he names them the desire of security. Where do I wrongly desire to avoid all risk? Where do I wrongly and in a frankly cowardly way refuse to go where God might call me because I I want to be secure and safe? That can be a false desire. Where, Where is wealth and material goods, the second concern named there in Deuteronomy 7 and 8? Where, where is that alluring me? Maybe not that I'd have stuff, but maybe that I would, I would have the sort of style of someone who doesn't care about stuff. Social commentator David Brooks years ago wrote about uh, what he called bobos. Uh, bourgeois bohemians who actually spent a lot of money to look like they didn't care about spending money. Um, we, can, we can find all sorts of ways, uh, according to different catalogs, to want the image and possessions of others. And third, Deuteronomy 10 and 11 name the danger of moralism, of being more righteous. And in fact, the verses Damien read from chapter seven allude to this, the, the idea of being more religious than those around you, wanting to have that kind of reputation, to have that kind of character that others would look to you as being a put-together sort of Christian. We can yearn for that which seems to mark those down the pew from us. It can be anything. It can be all these things, but it will be that you will be tempted by some particular things. And so we do well to name it and to acknowledge that Christ calls us to come and die, to die to false longings, to die to misperceived significance, to die to things that don't lead to genuine health and the health of our neighbor. But secondly, we need to note the importance of contentment and delight, and that that no is always for the sake of a greater yes. And I think this is where people inside the church oftentimes think external conformity, not murdering, not sleeping with the wrong person, not taking the wrong stuff, that's what it's about. While you stew and envy and grow bitter inside, while you become a miserable person, keeping all the rules and yet not dealing with the malady that continues to grow like a cancer within. And this is why people outside the church so often think that this is the stupidest thing we could all be doing. And that's not new either, of course. Paul had to confront that in the first century when he wrote to the Corinthians and he said, if Christ didn't die again, then we are the stupidest people in the world. Saying no and denying ourselves and going the way of the cross If there's not life, if there's not resurrection, if there's not joy and delight to be found, then this is a dumb investment. And so we do well to think about the delight that we're called to, the desire that's rightly meant for us. Augustine, the fifth century pastor theologian, talked about how coveting and craving is a flawed flawed reflection of beauty being beheld. And of course, what he meant there is the importance is to find the truly beautiful. Not simply to say no for the sake of saying no, but to say no to the wrong things so that you might behold and take in that which is truly good uh, and, and, and healthy and prompting you to help others. You can consider what Jesus said 
in his beatitudes that we'll be turning to in the next few weeks. Happy are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Happy are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Jesus is not cramping your style, though he is calling you away for your sin. Jesus is not simply commending the way of death and of no, but he's calling you to a greater yes and to life eternal. He's in the business of satisfaction. He's in the business of helping you to behold the truly beautiful that is God. We see, of course, people in his own day realized the cost. He confronted the rich young man and told him what would be entailed in following him and giving up, clamoring over earthly possessions and security and in blessing others with what God had given him, stewarding it for the benefit of society and especially the neediest around. And, and of course, the response after Jesus told him what was called for was, well, who can be saved? Jesus, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And these are words we ought to all listen to. It's hard. Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus responded there in Mark 10, 27, saying, with man it's impossible With man, it is impossible for a rich person to be saved, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And it's crucial to note, he's not saying God just makes it happen. When he says it's possible with God, he means much more directly that you can do this, you can enter the kingdom of heaven, you can be saved by God, provided you are with God. He doesn't simply say it's possible by God, like God pushes you along. That's actually true, and other parts of the Bible get at that idea. Here he's talking about this companionship, walking alongside someone. You can enter through this narrow way. You can give away comforts and allurements of life because you have divine friendship, because you have nearness to the beautiful one, because you perceive and are overwhelmed and taken with his glory and his goodness in The light of that, you can give away and say no to lesser things. With God, in union and communion with God, as you enjoy that kind of friendship in an ongoing way, you are empowered and enabled to say no to coveting and craving and desiring the distracting and the evil. And Jesus is simply picking up what's already there in the Old Testament in the 10th commandment, in the Psalms where we read, God fulfills the desire of those who fear him. Psalm 145, 19. He fulfills our desire. So many of our desires, as we get a bit of fulfillment, it makes you want more. A friend of mine who's unmarried and uh, suspects he will remain unmarried the rest of his life was writing just the other day, about experiencing friendship and deep companionship and how he's learning that that actually doesn't do away with experience of loneliness. It helps him endure loneliness, but it doesn't do away with it. As he experiences companionship with with my family, with other good, long-lasting friends, it actually reminds him of what he feels he misses as an unmarried person. And it helps him endure that struggle But the experience of intimacy and friendship actually also makes him want it more. It doesn't satisfy, 
but it helps him sustain the journey through it. But notice here, we have a promise. God fulfills desire. God satisfies our longings, as we will sing in a few minutes. That there is a promise to be found here. The Puritan pastor Thomas Chalmers spoke of what he called the expulsive power of a new affection. That to to rid ourselves of sinful habits and patterns, what we need to realize is a new taste for genuine beauty. If if you want to talk someone out of eating McDonald's hamburgers every day and perhaps trying to find a slightly more healthy menu, you need to deal with their taste buds. You need to deal with that which they actually delight in. There have been times in my life where I have craved things like Hot Pockets. I have been conditioned to desire that which I'm frankly not so sure is actually natural. Um, But nonetheless, I would consume it and long for it and partake of it. And sort of college necessity becomes adult craving. And that's not a good thing. And so it requires the ministry and care of others to help me delight in things that are actually healthy, perhaps even that are are just natural. Uh, It's that new affection that we need stirred within us so that we can delightfully say no, so that we can confidently and hopefully turn away from sin toward that which is healthy and life-giving. And perhaps the most profound verse that has sustained me in so many occasions in this way is at the end of Psalm 16 where death has been talked about. The psalmist names the ways God blesses him. You've, You've set the lines for me in good ways. But then he speaks of death and of how God doesn't let the Holy One see decay. There's, there's a promise of life on the other side of death. And he names that in verse 11. He says, you show me the path of life. This is not a request. This is a, a promise and a statement of fact. God shows me the path of life. And then he names what that is. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the psalmist is naming the fact that he can walk through death He can walk through sorrow. He can learn how to die because he knows God shows him the path of life and that it's in God's presence. It's at God's right hand. That there is longer lasting joy, pleasures forevermore, and there is greater joy, the fullness of joy to be found with God. So that with God, it is possible for even rich people, even privileged people, even folks with the right connections and with much promise, for them to turn away from those distracting goods and even from the downright evil and alluring things that we might fix our hearts upon God himself. One other verse that has been really significant for me in this regard comes from the end of the epistle to the Hebrews. And as we conclude our time in the word and and turn to God in song, I, I think it's an interesting illustration of a principle. We are not tempted to covet in the abstract. I never sit at night or lay down, put my head on my pillow and think, wealth in the abstract would be good. Or vocational success 
or the idea of having some sort of reputation amongst family, friends, neighbors would be valuable. Temptation is always concrete and particular. Temptation is always specific. Notice the 10th commandment. It gets real particular. Now it goes on and says, or anything that is your neighbor's, so the particulars can vary. Temptation comes in all sorts of forms. But it's always concrete and specific. You are never allured by the idea of sex. I mean, if, if anything were unarousing, it would be philosophically thinking about that. You are always tempted to lust by a specific person. You are always tempted by an advertisement, by an image, by some particular person walking across your path. I wish I could do this like they did. I wish I could have that friend or spouse or child like they do. I wish I could have that position and responsibility and title that they do. Whatever it may be, it's always particular. And we need to beware to note that the Bible doesn't just give us generalities to help us fend off particular temptations. That may work sometimes because God is gracious and kind, but if we're going to be tempted by very specific allurements, if we're gonna be distracted by very concrete things and persons, we need to tend to the ways in which the Bible actually gives you very specific promises of God to delight in and to treasure. And that's what we find in Hebrews 13. For example, it addresses this idea of coveting and material resources. It says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Okay, so you seek to not love and lust after more money and material objects. You be content with what God gives you. But then notice it goes on and it says, for or because he, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Notice it doesn't just say, don't worry about money because you're accepted in Jesus. Don't worry about material resources because you're justified before God. Those are all true. It gets real particular. The God who justified you and who accepted you the God who's done that in the gospel of Christ is a God who promises never to leave or forsake you. Promises to be present, promises to provide, promises to protect. So that when you're desiring something that would give you security or provision, you can know you don't need to take it. You don't need to long after it. It's there. It's promised. It is assured. There is a concrete and particular promise that we can treasure and cherish and herald in the face of temptation. And that's precisely what our Lord did. Remember in Matthew 4, he was confronted with specific allurements, food, prestige, and worship. And in each case, he took a specific word by which he responded to the tempter's cry. And in each case, from God's word, Jesus, the incarnate son, on our behalf, threw the stiff arm to temptation and fended it off, not just by being strong, though he was, not with simple abstract notions that he was God's and, and he would be redeemed by God from death, though he would be, but with very concrete promises, with very specific words. And so as we gather together, as we sing, 
as the word of Christ dwells richly amongst us, and then as we're scattered this week, and we go out and you will be tempted, you will have occasions to covet, I would implore you, I would plead with you that you take that delight and that joy that you have in union with Christ and being accepted and justified by him, and you would see how the one who has done that has promised so many other things that he will never leave you and forsake you. And that as you do your community Bible reading and as you go back over the songs that we've sung, you would look at the very particular specific ways in which God promises to be your shield and your warrior, your shepherd and your father, your provider and your Lord. So that as particular allurements tug at your heart, you can respond with a very specific word. As we gather, as we sing, and as we pray, We want to perceive the reality of God's presence and we want to have our hearts grow in their delight for his goodness so that the promise of his presence helps us to say no to the alluring temptation of the privilege of possessions. Let's pray and ask that God would do that for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you're with us, that you speak to us, You've not only redeemed us from sin, but you have redeemed us for glory in your presence. Put to death our false longings. Give new birth to joy and delight that's fixed in you and longs for your kingdom. Make us willing, like we've heard from dear and beloved brothers and sisters, that we too might willingly give up even comforts that are good, that we might go and bless those who are in need. May we be a people who are marked not by Uh, clutching tightly to the things of this world, but that we might be marked by our sprint toward you and your heavenly kingdom. And so we pray for the grace of your word and the gift of your spirit to grant us strength and hope in the face of every temptation, that we might follow in the way of our Savior who faithfully went to the bitter end and was brought to life again and glory with you. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.